Must be good luck. Uh, yeah. And hi, Aaron. Hi, Matt. It's, it's been a couple weeks. But it's time. We haven't been in the same state in a, in a little bit. Let alone the same room. Yeah. It's good to see you again. Mm-hmm. Ready for some soybean pest podcasting? Can't wait to do it. The world's oldest biological-based podcast. Hey, we're winning. Yeah. We beat all the odds. <laughs> they, they, we're they exceptional did, in they, many ways. They didn't say it could be done. Or they said it, it couldn't be done. Something like that. Move on. Yeah. All right. We got a lot to talk about. Okay. Uh, this is our second and last podcast of August 2018. <laughs> That's true. So we got a lot of territory to cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do some pest updates. Okay. What do we know about pests in August in Iowa and beyond? Pest activity has been really all over the place. If some you good, like, some bad. if you like to study soybean aphid, it's been kind of a bummer summer. Yeah. But if you're farming, you're probably well, pretty happy. Uh, except you've probably got other issues that are causing you trouble, and yes, most definitely. But I think soybean aphid was, you know, slid off the plate of concern for most farmers. Not a lot of treatments going on, oh, which good. is great. Uh, good, yeah. I think that means people. No, when there's not a lot of aphids, I don't expect to make a profit from that. And so, I mean, I did see planes flying in August, but I, I'm not sure if that was for soybean aphid or if it was fungicides or, or something else. Yeah. I wonder, uh, and we'll probably get some data on this in the fall, whether farmers like really put the pedal to the metal on import. Yeah, so soybean aphid, uh, yeah, not a big deal no. in terms of numbers, but with soybean prices down, maybe that resulted in less input use. Yes. And hopefully that's the case because farmers, given the trade war issues and tariffs, uh, probably need to save as much money as possible. Yeah, and, and for those folks that are in southern Iowa, I think we were set up for spider mite outbreaks because of the uh, uh, drought stress. But we got, I think, just enough timely moisture that people could find spider mites, but they didn't turn into outbreaks. So they're saved there. Yeah, it, it's been remarkable to me in talking with uh, friends and colleagues like in Missouri and further south. We in central Iowa got a lot of rain. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. yeah. But it was almost the opposite in southern Iowa and Missouri. Dead corn, right? It, uh, yeah, it really. It, it just had burned yeah. up. Yeah, and um, we were having uh, fairly cool uh, days where you know, 200 miles to the south of us, 90 plus yeah. and dry. That seemed pretty drastic change from one state to the next. I want to say one thing about that. Um, sure. I just came back on a road trip out east. I was coming through oh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and finally Iowa. And it was remarkable to me, especially in Illinois, how um, far along the soybean crop was. Mm-hmm. There were big patches yep. that... Um, were under senescence. Mm-hmm. But when I got to Iowa, and this is along I-80, mm-hmm. didn't see the same thing. Hmm. Yeah, when I I, I uh, had a meeting with our field agronomist this Monday, and almost everyone was talking about the quick progress of, to maturity for corn and soybean throughout the state. So it's, it's maturing faster than it normally does, anywhere from 10 to 14 days ahead of like a normal schedule. So smaller beans, smaller corn, yeah. 
uh, smaller kernels and seeds, lower test weights, that kind of thing. So it doesn't look to be one of those bin buster type harvests. Yeah. And you said something to me, um, I think a day or so ago, that we had warm temperatures. Sometimes, you know, not record-breaking, but we had, you know, uh, uh, kind of moderately warm temperatures. Mm -hmm. But we had uh, warm nights. Yeah. And the warm nights prevented the plants from sort of opening up the stomatas, breaking in the CO2, really firing up the photosynthesis machine. Yep. Um, because when it's warm, they're trying to yeah. prevent So they never got a break. Yeah. I think so, they like to break at night. Yeah, yeah. And that's to a recover. critical part of uh, crop development and, and, and getting that optimal yield. And we didn't see it this year. Mm-hmm. So kind of a bummer. Yeah. Um, but it's getting to the end. And it looks like there's regional differences in development. But the overall picture is it's coming fast. Yep. We're getting to the end faster than usual. Yeah, I agree. When did this become the soybean agronomist podcast? I don't know. I feel like we need to bring in a physiologist or something yeah. like that just to get that. So we're not just like saying stuff, pulling <laughs> it out of who knows where. Maybe maybe uh, John Sawyer or somebody could fact check this. Mm. Um, so let's talk about something insect related. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the chloropyrifos ban that was announced back uh, early August. Yeah. Oh. Really hit the, the social media world yeah. for a few this, days there. This is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it on Facebook, Reddit, CNN, MSNBC, all the places. Maybe even Fox News. I think everywhere. I think my mom called me about this. Ooh. That's social media. Your mom didn't call me, but yeah, I could imagine that. <laughs> Does my mom call you a lot? I don't have to say anything else. No. Can we edit that out? All right. Let's get back on topic here. So on August 9th, 2018, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, this is the west coast of the United States, Mm -hmm. predominantly California, but also some of the other states, that Circuit Court of Appeals rejected the petition by Scott Pruitt on March 27th. March 2017 to uh, ban All Alright, that got a little complicated there. Let's do a little bit of history here. Let's break it down. Back during the Obama administration, uh, there was a investigation into the possible impact of chloropyrifos on development of uh, brains, baby brains, and there was a, a group of evidence that had been accumulating suggesting that chloropyrifos um, can have negative impacts on brain development in humans. So, so Matt, do you know if this is just part of the ongoing data gathering that goes along with all insecticides uh, so that they can continue the label, or is this a special type of process? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not a lawyer or a legal historian scholar, mm-hmm. but what I understand is the last um, kind of federal change to the laws that regulate insecticides. The Food Quality Protection Act um, back in the second Clinton administration noted that there should be changes to how tolerances are set. Tolerance being the amount of pesticide that could be found on food or Mm -hmm. that people could be exposed to. Because there's multiple routes of exposure. And one of the considerations that was put in that law is that you can't just consider exposures for people. You have to also think about 
the differential exposure that kids experience. And kids aren't just small humans, it turns out. Their physiology, their biology is often different from adults. And so this was a consideration that was part of the regulatory process for insecticides. And over the course of about a decade or so, there has been evidence suggesting that exposure to chlorpyrifos by mothers can result in changes to baby development compared to some others that aren't exposed to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm summarizing a large body of research that, you know, I, frankly, I, I don't have the expertise to fully uh, summarize in detail. But the point I'm trying to get at is this was the driver for, under the Obama administration, a, uh, several restrictions that were placed, and then and ultimately uh, a proposed ban on chlorpyrifos, an organophosphate insecticide. In March 2017, the new director of EPA, Scott Pruitt, issued that the EPA was going to reject that ban. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. Well, then a lawsuit was sent to the Ninth, as I understand it, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that court ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, saying um, there was no justification for the EPA's decision in that 2017 order to maintain the tolerances. So what that means is, you know, Scott Pruitt went back and said, nope, we're not going to reject, we're not going to ban chlorpyrifos by rejecting tolerances. We're going to stick with what we had. Not change, not make any changes. Right. Yeah. And um, the judges in their two-to-one decision said, no, you, you can't do that. Again, I'm kind of paraphrasing, and I'm not a legal scholar, but I, I think what they're saying in that statement is you don't have a justification for overturning that decision, so you have to stick with it. And as I understand the articles that I've read in, about this and um, is that this leaves the EPA with three choices. And those could be, they could reconsider, they could ask the circuit, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to reconsider that decision. Reconsider the ban. Well, reconsider uh, what, reconsider their, um, their ruling that they had to, um, you know, overturn the, the ban. Mm-hmm. Or they could appeal it to the Supreme Court. So say, you know, we'll go through the appeals process. Or the third one is, well, they could just go ahead with the ban. Except. Yeah. Except their ruling. Yeah. And what I, I think has happened since August 9th when that court ruling uh, went down is there's been a review period within EPA. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of considering their options. And I think that's a 60-day period. Yep. And the re- uh, So what are we at? We're at the end of August. That's about 30 days. So in about two more months, they're going to come up with a decision, mm-hmm. which is one, one of those three options. Yep. Um, and this is, I imagine this is probably a bit up in the air because Scott Pruitt resigned from the EPA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what the next leader of EPA will do is 
going to be dependent upon who that leader is and how they decide to go forward. Do you know if they have an interim or someone? Oh, if only there was a device that one could query that would pull that up. Um, Yeah. Uh, You know, (laughs) this is where my attention span came to an end because I, you know, I'm thinking, well, as as you are, you know, chlorpyrifos is uh, commonly used. I'm kind of hesitating there because over time its use has declined. Yes. Um, it, it, and yeah, and because it, it already was a restricted use pesticide, mm-hmm. so it's not like the average homeowner can use it, and so in some ways it has been fairly restricted to agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so, um, and on top of that, and yeah, that my, my cell phone's blown up because we're getting calls from listeners oh. on this hot topic. Nice. But uh, on top of that, there was a ban on urban use especially in areas where kids are, yeah. such that there was, like, uh, buffers bef- between mm-hmm. schools and, and use of chlorpyrifos. But use in agriculture hadn't been affected. Right. But this new ban back 2016 would have taken care of all of that. Mm-hmm. Taken care of it. You know, would have restricted all of that. Right. But despite... It, uh, it kind of sound like my frustrated teenager daughter when she's debating irregardless of the EPA's decisions there has been a recent historical decline in chlorpyrifos use now didn't our, John Tooker and one of his students demonstrate that um, I, for corn and soybean I, I, uh, that may be the case I was thinking of a paper that we reviewed you can go back to a couple seasons ago that um, life cycle assessment analysis oh, yeah. where okay. some toxicologists out of the University of California uh, system showed that corn, wheat, cotton see have seen historical declines over the last decade, um, but not for, for pesticides, especially in corn for chlorpyrifos, but that decline didn't occur in soybeans. So smash cut to our world, right? Here we are. We just talked about aphids. Well, the soybean aphid uh, is susceptible to chlorpyrifos in a way that it's becoming less susceptible to pyrethroids, which Correct. are the number one insecticide used for soybean aphids. So in our world where resistance to pyrethroids um, is starting to happen, and we think starting to spread, thanks to work by our colleague Bob Cook up at University of Minnesota, and collaborators at Minnesota or at, in the Dakotas. Um, if that continues, there's this fear now. I think it's a justifiable fear that without the pyrethroids, what else would you use? And if the OP in the form of chlorpyrifos isn't there, uh, what are we going to do? Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think farmers probably their one of their first choices for a foliar insecticide for soybean aphid would be a pyrethroid, uh, not only because of price, but because of their perception of kind of that quick knockdown. You know, it kind of smacks those aphids down if they're susceptible. So um, those folks that that think they have a problem or know they have a problem with pyrethroid resistance. I think their next logical choice is to choose a different group number, and that is usually means an organophosphate. And a group number is a way through the uh, 
uh, IRAC, Insecticide Research Action Committee. Insecticide Resistance Action Sorry, Committee, yeah. Yeah, a way of grouping insecticides by different modes of action. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to combat resistance, you want to use different modes of action. Right. So you want to use something that is fundamentally different from pyrethroid if the aphid starts developing resistance to pyrethroids. Yep. Organophosphates were such a group. Mm-hmm. Chlorophyrophosphate was such yeah. an insecticide. So, you know, I've been talking a lot. But I think the discussion becomes, well, one of trade-offs, cost-benefit analysis. And, I, you know, I, I'm not a legal scholar. I don't know how, how that is done in the regulatory world. Now, um, there are ways to petition EPA for emergency exemptions. Mm-hmm. But if the tolerances are removed such that it's effectively banned, I don't know if the Section 18 could be right. requested when pyrethroid-resistant aphids blow up and what are you left with? Yeah, yeah because I, I think about pests and other systems. If you have either resistance or you have restrictions on use, uh, farmers will still want to use something. right? They'll, if, if they can't use a pyrethroid because it doesn't work and if they can't use an organophosphate because it's not on the label what will they be able to use and there's very limited options after those two modes of action are taken away yeah there's there could be sofloxaflor and pyrotetramine um and was it cobalt is the, the commercial name for a pyrethroid and then a neonicotinoid that's combined cobalt would be organophosphate and a pyrethroid oh, oh so yeah. that would be so a lot of the the premixes include a pyrethroid in with them, okay. and so but that wouldn't it's not an attractive option if you have resistance, yeah. right? Because yeah. usually the amount of a premix is not quite up to the fully labeled rates if they were sold individually. So um, so all of that is kind of big picture issues. Yeah. Then there's some more short term issues about well, what would this ban mean for farmers that already have this in the barn? Mm-hmm. Um, what would it mean for retailers that have it on the shelves? Yep. And because I'm trying to remember when when we did have a label for for Transform with Dow Agrosign. Yep. Um, and then they um, basically had that same thing. They got sued and and couldn't. It got banned, so they couldn't they couldn't sell it anymore. But are, do you remember if people had it purchased? Could they still apply it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we should research that, yeah. Because um, I'm I'm a little bit hazy on that. I think there has been the situation where, you know, d- depending upon the timing of the ban. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if, you know, it's it, August 9th was the ruling, and it, it would be October, yeah. when it when a final decision has to be made. Would farmers, not stockpile? That's not the right word. But the, but would they prepay? for what they perceive what you know, their needs are for the next couple of growing seasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean... And what's it, the shelf life or yeah. something like that. Yeah, and yeah. so if they paid for it, would they still be able to legally use it? Or, yeah. you're talking about the tolerances, yeah. you yeah. could use it, but then could you sell the grain? I mean, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. so many questions come up. So I think I, I'm about 70% confident right now that regardless of what's going on within the August 9th ruling and, and the consideration process and then what may follow after these 60 days um, use of chlorpyrifos this summer is not effective right so carry on you know but 
you know, if I were a farmer and I have a need, a year-to-year need for chlorpyrifos, I would be kind of, you know, checking in, uh, what, October, uh, maybe November, yeah. and be thinking about, okay, what, what could this mean? Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, you know, we've been talking for, what, 20 minutes? Is there any actionable intelligence <laughs> that we've provided farmers? I don't know. Maybe not, um, yeah. except this is an issue that has not yet been resolved, and you can look towards November for some resolution mm-hmm. to occur. Um, but for now, carry on. Could you imagine a situation where we can use organophosphates like chlorpyrifos, but it has a label restrictions such as like a buffer uh, around field yeah, borders yeah. or something like that? So this is the thing that kind of blows my mind is, you know, if, if it's the concern is for child development, mm-hmm. you know, it seems to me that you could select restrictions on crops that would come into a child's exposure mm-hmm. more than, say, others, and you know, weigh some cost benefits. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not a toxicologist, yeah. Yeah. but it, but it seems I would. I wonder if there aren't points of flexibility in the regulatory process where, you know, working with the registrant, they could say, well, you know. I don't know. This is hypothetical. Uh, kids eat a lot of mushy peas. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so let's think about restricting the use there, you mm-hmm. know, removing the tolerances on snap beans or whatever. Yeah. But given, on fruits and vegetables type. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but then think about well, for a field crop like soybeans that doesn't really channel into mm-hmm. the diets of kids. Now there's a whole nother question beyond child exposure, worker exposure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's another set of issues that, you know, have their own sets of questions that have to be asked that are different. Yeah. I I often hear, you know, farmers or applicators don't like using chlorpyrifos because they, they perceive it to be more toxic, toxic because they can smell it. Mm-hmm. And they don't like that smell. They don't have that same perception when it comes to pyrethroids. If I can't smell it, it must not be bad. So, I mean, that's a whole nother hurdle to cross. Yeah. But um, that's why, you know, not only price, but like their perception of safety. Although both would be considered restricted use, the, the smell yeah. of yeah. a chlorpyrifos is off-putting to a lot of farmers. But in some ways that smell can be a godsend if you're trying to yeah. avoid exposure. Oh, wait a minute, that yeah. smells bad. Yeah. You know, let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, have I, I know, I think it's a good thing. uh, It's, it's good to talk out loud on some of this. I've been getting some questions about what is the impact of losing, uh, chlorpyrifos from field crops in Iowa. And there's so many questions about, you know, what would happen for next year? Um, what are their options, either a ban or a restriction Mm -hmm. could change the way that people think about managing pests. And it could ultimately be a more expensive thing to do. Yeah. So people are, you know, when the market value isn't good, people don't want to spend more money on pest management. So it's it's not really a happy story at this point. Yeah. And, you know, kind of to repeat myself, there's not, I mean, there are things people can do. They can contact the EPA. You know, there's a routes for that. But in terms of how this immediately affects pest management, yeah. right now I don't think there is anything. Right. But in the future, there could be. Um, 
And, you know, for our little slice of this pie, you know, the, the think, my thinking is, yeah, we, we, should, we should investigate alternative pest management practices because the more diversified our toolbox is, the less likely, you know, one is going to be re- lost due to, say, resistance or regulatory action or whatever. And I shouldn't say less likely, but at least the, the, the impact of that loss is reduced. You know, if you have more tools available yes. to you, yeah. hence our what decade plus uh, work on aphid resistant soybeans. Yep. Exactly. So. Makes them even a more valuable valuable tool to use in combination or you know, alongside a foliar insecticide. So maybe host plant resistance really gets kind of picked up within the industry. Who knows? Yeah. Who hopes? Have we killed that topic? No. We just, we, we just scratch the yeah, surface, but as, I think it's as, maybe as deep as we can go today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. So anything else we need to or want to talk about? Um, hey, you got a field day. One, pardon? Sorry. I just, you got a field day next week. I have a couple of field days. I have one down at Armstrong Farm near Lewis to talk about soy, uh, the soybean gall midge, which is oh, kind of you know blowing up yeah. in western Iowa. And then on the 6th, going up to northern Iowa for Practical Farmers of Iowa, PFI yeah, Field Day, talking about host plant resistance for soybean aphid and bringing along graduate student Erica Rodbell, and she's been working on it for a couple of years. You're going to bring along some examples of midge damage to that uh, PFI? We, we, we could. Might be interesting because I think I heard you say something like 10 counties in Iowa? 16, at least 16 that I know of. There's there's likely more, but that's sure. what I've been able to confirm this year, this summer. And that part of Iowa, have you had any reports from there? Um, I, I can't remember what county Marble Rock is in, um, but it would be close. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's something that people should have their eye out open for. And it's kind of devastating, right? I mean, I, those plants are like walking dead. I mean, they look okay from above, but in my opinion, infested plants die. It's oh. not like, eh, you lost a few pods or a few beans. Those plants don't make it, and they lodge and tip over. Oh so it's, you know, like aphids, you can tolerate a certain amount of aphids or spider mites. But with this, they basically cut them off at the knees. Do you think it's a zero-threshold pest in the sense that if you see evidence for it, some management is going to be necessary? Well, that is hard because my observations is that it was highly aggregated at the edge. So it would be a perfect pest to do site-specific, you know, if you could do perimeter treatments. If you had a UAV yeah. trigger, you know, with some kind of pesticide cannon, <laughs> do we know what pesticide would kill this midge? I, I don't think it's hard to kill the adults, yeah. but I don't know of products that can get inside uh, to have systemic activity. And it doesn't appear that the insecticidal seed treatments had much impact this year, which that would be a perfect use for seed yeah, treatments. Yeah. But it is, appears that because they have multiple, it appears they have multiple generations. So, you know, if you get infested in July and August, the seed treatment doesn't have an effect. So I think it'll be either uh, an adult control program. Yeah. Or you'd have to have a well-timed treatment or treatments. But ideally, it would be something like host plant resistance. And this is it target-rich environment for a bunch of research. Oh, yeah. That could have pretty profound impact, assuming that this problem continues, right? Yeah. It's kind of expanded over the last It, it definitely ramped decade. up this year. I would expect 
it to progress eastward in Iowa and westward in Nebraska. Okay. But I, I don't know what the limitations are, like wh- why some fields get infested and some don't. There's all these scenarios cover floating crop. around. Some had cover crops, some didn't. Wow. So some really believe that cover crops play a role, but I yeah. I visited you know handfuls that didn't have cover crops in the in that county. So you know it, it doesn't seem to be uh, favoring or discouraging them. And the midge adult mm-hmm. still fly. Mm-hmm. Let's compare how many how many soybean aphids could sit on the back of a midge. <laughs> you could probably fit a mom on a couple babies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean they're small. I mean they're such. Like most midges, they're tiny little wimpy flies, and they're yeah. weak flyers. You can't hardly even pick them up before you smash them. I don't know how they can get around, but they do. Well, I they mean, do obviously have they have. They yeah, have wings. they have. They too. have a couple of wings. Yeah. yeah, they have a couple of wings mm-hmm. at least. At least two. That's yeah. why they're a fly. <laughs> but it just seems like how could that little thing, you know, cause so much damage? Yeah. But those larvae are just like teenagers in the fridge. They just cannot stop eating. And they just eat themselves to, you know. What's the time? We're about 30 minutes. At 30 minutes, Aaron tells the best joke ever. (laughs) (laughs) Kids opening up the fridge. I mean, they're just like, I cannot get enough to eat. And they just can do an incredible amount of damage. It's crazy because they're so small. I know. Where's that going? It's like an eight-year-old, I think. I mean, I don't have kids, so I don't Mm. know. But it just seems like they could graze all day. No, um. Uh, my 16-year-old. is worse. Oh, my God. We just okay. traveled across country, and we would stop at places, and she'd be like, can I get something to eat? <laughs> it was like nonstop. Every couple hours. And then we were at this we were at this uh, shop. She really likes to go to, um, what do you call it, um, thrift stores. Mm-hmm. And she found this, uh, this necklace or bracelet, and it had a little piece of, like, um, metal with really tiny lettering and she brings it up to me she holds it right up against my face she goes dad what do you think of this is this me and it reads in tiny lettering always hungry (laughs) (laughs) maybe she's going to be tall maybe she's going to be a midge i don't know know. we'll find out so much to so much to learn so maybe we should wrap up there okay yeah i think that's our cue uh, field days next week yep um if you're pfi you can come if not i think you can still come crash the party yeah hey aaron they say some people only use 10% of their brains. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us only use 10% of our hearts. Aww. You know what that's from? No. Wedding Crashers. Hmm. Love that movie. Okay. Okay. So, hearts and minds. <laughs> okay. Hey, Thanks, uh, man. You can find us on Google, Google with Soybean Etymology, Twitter at Aaron W. Hodson. Uh, you're going to be tweeting all next week. Crazy tweets about it. Always be tweeting. Always be tweeting. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha